0: Hello, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning in worship, and if you're new here, uh, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here. Steve, who led the early part of the worship, is our assistant pastor, and we'd love to meet you if we haven't yet, Um, so stick around for a few minutes after the worship service. If you are new, we're going through a series on the, the letter or the epistle of 1 Peter called Everyday Christianity. What does it mean to live as a person of faith, as a resident alien in your everyday life and in the everyday context that you inhabit uh, today. So that's what we're going to continue looking at. Steve started last week with the, the idea that somehow Christians are in this world as resident aliens, that they're, they're strangers in some way. And so we're going to continue that this morning by looking at resident aliens who have hope, Every day Christianity, every day hope. But would you pray with me as we get started? Father, we come here this morning feeling alienated in many ways. Some of us feel alienated from our parents. Some of us feel alienated from our children. Some of us feel alienated even from ourselves, and we're looking for some way to be reunited with who we are want to be, with who we think we should be, with our genuine, true selves. Others of us feel like strangers. Because of our allegiance to Christ, we feel like strangers in our increasingly pluralistic world. We don't know how to live as resonant aliens in a winsome way, in a way that cares for our neighbors, in a way that is whole, in a way that is clinging to you and to your promises and to your truth in a way that is somehow attractive and invites other people into that way of life. Others of us feel strange just being in this place. Maybe we've walked away from you a long time ago. Maybe we've never even contemplated being in church and here we find ourselves this morning and it feels strange, maybe a little alienated. Father, I pray that through this ancient text that Spirit, you would speak to us, that you would grant us an understanding of the gospel, an understanding of grace, an understanding, really, of what we're even looking for in life, and help us to find it in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week in the Oregonian that 700,000 new people are expected in our metro area in the next 20 years. That's over 30,000 a year of growth. United Van Lines did a study, well they do a study each and every year about states where people are moving to and moving from. And in 2013, Oregon had the highest percentage of people moving inbound rather than outbound. So, why is this happening? What is what is going on in Oregon? What's in the water? What's so attractive here in Portland that people are uprooting their lives and coming to Portland? some with no job and not even a job prospect. But something about Portland embodies this ideal that they want to be a part of. They're willing to come without a job because life holds some sort of promise here. Now, obviously, some of these are job changes. Some of this growth is just natural birth of a 2.3 million person city. But I hear story after story of people deliberately leaving Something behind in search of a new life, to start something new. They're moving from something and to something. Is there some renewal, some cause, some new thing that will bring me the life that I'm looking for? Is there something that will give rest to my wandering heart? Is there something that will maybe bring healing from past relational, emotional scars? Portland holds out promise for some reason for people looking for that sort of thing. And when Peter uses this term of salvation a number of times, how do we make that relevant in a pluralistic post-Christendom context like Portland? Aren't we all looking for some sort of salvation? Even if we don't use the terms that Peter uses here, Aren't we looking for some salvation from our, our inner turmoil, from our alienation, from our, our strangeness? And is there any hope? Is there any everyday hope? Well, we're going to look at this just with three simple questions. This everyday hope. What is it? And then why do you need it? And how do you get it? So first of all, everyday hope. What is Hope. Well, look at verse 3. Peter says, We're born again into a living hope. And then in verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, that is kept or reserved in heaven for you. In some way, this everyday hope, our hope, isn't just an action on our part or an, an affect. It's not just an emotion, but this sort of hope objectively exists somehow somewhere. And Peter says it's kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance. Now, an inheritance, in the way that we understand it, is something that we do not yet possess. It's something that someone else, likely parents, hold for us in reserve. It's an inheritance that one day we will get access to. But theoretically, it could evaporate. An inheritance could be wiped out because of the stock market crash. Your parents could gamble it all away. They could disown you because you're just being an idiot. They don't want to give you the inheritance anymore. But Peter says this inheritance isn't like a trust fund, that this inheritance is imperishable. It's utterly safe in galactic, cosmic terms. It's utterly safe. Nothing can touch it. No one, not even you, can diminish it. There's no threat to this inheritance. It is reserved for you. It is imperishable. It will be kept for you in heaven. Now, these are the the characteristics of hope, but still, what is it? What is hope? What is this type of hope? Verse 5 says, the coming of the salvation that is to be revealed in the last day. So we're continuing to build out this idea. There's something that is presently accessible about this hope, and yet something that is yet distant, something that is coming, something that is yet future. And then he says something extraordinary, something unexpected. Verse 7, he says, these have come, that is these trials that the readers of this epistle are undergoing. These have come so that your faith... Of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's talking here about the last day, the end of time, the end of the world as we know it. Something has been kept for them all this time. And what is it? Those who believe. Here's what's been kept for you, the readers of the epistle, those of you who are Christians, who are in faith in Christ. This is what is being kept for you. Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Well, okay, we sort of expect that. On the last day, we will stand up, be resurrected in order to give praise, glory, and honor to him to Jesus. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say that your faith will move you to praise, glory, and honor. It says your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor. It's not talking here about giving praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. It's talking about praise, glory, and honor from Jesus to you, that that's what is being kept and reserved in heaven. Now, that, that seems a little unsettling. It seems a little upside down, if not sort of sacrilegious, because aren't we as Christians meant to move forward and, and at the end of days rise to give glory and praise to, to Jesus? Of course, but why are we hesitant when the Bible changes it and turns it upside down for us? Because really, it's upside down throughout the Scriptures, if we're paying attention, if we're good readers of the Bible, we see that this great exchange is being offered, that Jesus comes in the fulfillment of the Old Testament saying, what, my life for yours, that he lays down his life for his friends. Everything that is Jesus' is yours. That's what he comes offering. Everything that I have, I want to give to you. Everything that I possess, I want you to possess. On the cross, he says that he's taking all of our debt, all of our demerit, and giving us all of his life and honor and glory. Everything, in other words, that Jesus deserves, when he goes to the cross, he gives it to those who are his followers in full. And this is what he keeps for you. In heaven where not even your sin, not your misdeeds, not your whatever can get to it. It's kept imperishable, reserved for you. It's sequestered from all of your worst moments. And on the last day, you're not left hoping that, well, perhaps I've done enough. Perhaps on balance that my life has been reasonably good. And therefore, I'm coming now into this inheritance that I have earned that i deserve instead he gives you everything that he lives for he gives you his honor he grants you his glory he grants you his joy forever how apparently sacrilegious but how different from every every other religious system that we can imagine. That's the uniqueness, that's the strangeness of Christianity, the strangeness of the gospel, the weirdness of this grace that the God who could demand everything of us instead gives us everything. So that's the the what is part of this. What is everyday hope, at least as the Bible explains it? But why do you need it? Why do we need hope? Andrew Delbanco is a professor at Columbia University, and he wrote a number of years ago a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And he says this, "...human beings need to organize their lives into a story that gives us hope. Without some structure by which hope is expressed, we would be a kind of formless monster." with neither sense of direction nor power of self-control, in a chaos of vague emotions. Okay, there you go. That's the reason for hope. It's pretty straightforward that we need it as an organizational construct for our lives. But he goes on to say, without hope, we overcome, or with hope, we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. In other words, hope is a very Christian term, but it's not an exclusively Christian experience or wish that we're all looking for hope. And I don't know this professor's spiritual background. As far as I know, he's a secular observer of American culture. And even he understands that the human being needs Something larger from which to live, some story that's bigger than ourselves. Otherwise, we're just fidgeting until death. And we need hope because life inevitably includes pain and suffering. And Peter's readers, the readers of this epistle, were in the throes of difficulty. They're undergoing trials. And what Peter is doing is he's helping them re narrate their experience. He's trying to give them a superstructure of hope that gives them a foundation for having joy and having a reason to look forward to the future in the midst of what they're undergoing. He acknowledges their suffering, he gives dignity to their suffering, but he doesn't allow it to sum them up as people. And there's even a possibility, it seems, of for suffering to be intermingled with joy. Notice verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? It's in your hope, in the inheritance that can never perish and spoil or fade that's kept in heaven for you. In that you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's something paradoxical, something inexplicable that's going on in the reader's experience, because there's two observations that, that don't make sense apart from a larger preeminent story that re-narrates their, their experience, their trials, their suffering, that puts them in perspective. You are right now, he says, rejoicing in hope, but it also says you are right now suffering horrible grief and agony and trial both at the same time. Both are present tense. Rejoicing in hope and in deep grief and agony. These two things are happening simultaneously. You're incredibly filled with joy and you're incredibly filled with pain at the same time. How can that be? Well, we need as the real American dream says, something more to our story, something outside of us that keeps life from being just fidgeting until the end of our days. And we intuitively know this, don't we? Whether or not we're Christians here this morning, we intuitively know that we need a larger story. We're looking for that larger story. We have some vision of the good life that we're living by, that we're making decisions from. But if that vision of life really only involves circumstantial things, if it really only involves more education, more friends, a new, better job, a new city to live in, if our deepest hope in life is preserving or changing our circumstances, then when those circumstances go well, when we have success, we'll be happy. And when they don't, when our circumstances change for the negative, we'll be sad. And it's really as as simple as that. We all know this instinctually, and yet we get caught living according to our changing circumstances, that we place our hope in preserving or changing our circumstances for the better. What Peter is saying, and what these readers are experiencing, is that we must have something more ultimate to live for than just our circumstances, There must be something more ultimate to root our story in. And these readers have rooted their story, and this is why they can hold together paradoxically great pain and suffering and joy and hope at the same time. It's because they've rooted their story in a personal God who knows and loves them, who doesn't belittle their pain, but wants to use it to refine them and through it ultimately to to liberate them from it. You see, there's a way that this sort of experience, when you, when you found your life, when you put your life in this ultimate meaning of a personal God who loves you and has reached into your story, there's a way to give credence to your pain and suffering and your circumstances that are negative that doesn't allow them to totally define you or decimate you. Notice the image in verse 7, your faith of greater weight worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire. Now fire, of course, refines gold, it purifies it. it, it makes it more pure. And if our deepest hope, if our ultimate story is rooted in Jesus, then our circumstances don't have the power to decimate us, to destroy us, Instead, the circumstances are those things which God uses to refine us, to make you more pure, to make you more like him, to make you more holy. And they can drive you into a deeper hope and a deeper trust. Dostoevsky says in The Brothers Karamazov, he says, I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed. And it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what is happening or what has happened. Do You see, that's the sort of living hope that animates the readers that Peter is addressing. That there's this hope that is, yes, future, but yet is presently accessible in some way. That God is using circumstances to refine you, to make you into the person that He's created you to be, and then will ultimately fully liberate you from your circumstances and from your trials and your suffering. What is it? How do we get it? And then finally, or why do we need it? And finally, how do you get it? How do you get this kind of hope? How do you become like these readers of this epistle? who see themselves as resonant aliens, who are suffering, and yet somehow that suffering is intermingled with joy and hope and looking forward to the future. How do you get it? Well, you're born into it. You're born into this everyday living hope. Now, I don't remember much about my birth. You probably don't either about yours. But I've participated in four. We have four children, but let's be honest, there wasn't much participating going on. Katie did all the work, and I just tried to stay out of the way and not make her mad or knock something over. Each of our kids came out, and they started breathing, and they coughed, and they cried, and they required near constant attention for about a year and a half before you could kind of take your eyes off of them and be assured that they'd still be alive a few minutes later. They participated in this birth, but they were relatively passive in the event. They're born, children are born, you were born, through the labor and through the suffering of someone else. And this is what Jesus is offering. This is the type of new start, of new life, of new beginning that he wants to offer you, that he wants you to take hold of. And maybe you've come to Portland looking for something resembling that but not quite that and this is what Jesus says is that in your searching in your coming to the city looking for a new life that what you're looking for underneath that is hope it's meaning and what Jesus says what Peter is implying here is that it's him that it's Jesus that you're looking for that he's not just a teacher delivering a new insight that'll make the world make sense for you Because if that's the case, then what you would do in response is say, okay, well, I'll do my best. I'll try and follow this new system of teaching. And people have tried this, and many Christians live this way. They adopt the social ethics of Jesus. They try to be a respectable person. They're involved in church life, but they add add religion to what they're already doing in life. And undoubtedly, this has changed their lives in many, many positive ways. But it's unlikely to do what? It's unlikely to be anything like a new birth. It's unlikely to electrify you and galvanize you in the midst of trial. If Jesus is just a teacher, then you can take some of those insights into your suffering, and maybe it'll ameliorate it somewhat, but it won't galvanize you. It won't electrify you. It won't be anything like a new birth if it's just you trying to follow a new set of guidelines to life, a new set of social ethics. He's not a teacher who tells you how to live a good life, how to change your circumstance. He's the Savior who comes to bring grace to you in the midst of your circumstances. He's a Savior who suffers and dies in an inglorious way so that you can have the hope of glory. It's the great exchange. It's the gospel. Now, we we fathers, we dads have a difficult time wrapping our minds around what is going on when our wives are giving birth and what a, what a mom is giving up on behalf of the child. You get basically nine months of discomfort and not very good sleep. You go through this tremendously excruciating pain during the delivery. And then after that, you get the scars, you get the stretch marks, you get many more months, if not years, of not enough sleep. It's easy for you moms to get that birth is something extraordinary but it's not normally the dangerous thing that it was in the ancient world the the readers of this epistle would have gotten that in the way that you did but there would have been a completely other layer that we don't normally experience in our modern healthcare system most moms don't die giving birth to their babies you get that it's something extraordinary but his readers in ancient times, no baby was ever born except for extreme risk to the life of the mother. And this is what Peter is saying is true of how Jesus gives you, grants you, new birth. Women gave birth at the, very, at the risk of their very lives. And Jesus gives you, grants you new birth at the cost of his. And it's astounding if you think about this. That God who created the world, that has the power to set up the way that you approach him in any way that he wants to, that he's not a God who sits in heaven demanding to be pleased, demanding fealty, demanding that you do this and then I will do that. He's not a God who watches dispassionately as his children suffer, as his children mess up their lives. He's a God who descends to earth to take up your cause, to take up my cause, to rescue us from even ourselves, to renew the world that gives us so much pain. And what does Peter say at the end of this? He says that even the angels long to look into these things. What does that mean? Well, the angels would have to be pretty smart people, I would think, pretty wise. They've been around for a while, millions of years, presumably. And yet, they're astounded by this. When they see the gospel as Peter's writing it, and when they see people that are living in light of that, they're astounded, and they long to look into these things. They're astounded by the gospel, what it means is that they're always eager to reflect on these things and in new ways what God has done for you and I through Jesus. The angels are always looking to discover new beauties, new wonders, new insights of the gospel. It gives them joy to see how God has given up his life for you. That that's astounding to them, and it should be astounding to us if we think about it, how do you get it? How do you get this hope? Well, you're born into it. Not in a privileged sense, not in a classist sense that you're born into privilege. No, you're made alive by the gospel. You're made alive by the life, death, work, and resurrection of Jesus. You're born into it. You're, in some ways, a participant, but it's in a passive way because all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is say I need that sort of hope. I need that sort of life and Jesus grants you. He births you again. And it should be as extraordinary and as galvanizing and as unique as at least as your physical birth. The angels are amazed that God would give up something so priceless, something so costly for absolutely nothing free. And so what we do in worship, what we do in singing, in preaching, in reading Scripture, in coming now to the table, in confessing our faith, is that we revisit that new birth. We marvel at it. We wrestle from it new insights, new wonders. We place ourselves, we re-narrate our lives through the story of the gospel, through this table, We situate ourselves once more as children who have received new birth, born out of the costly death of Jesus. So let's now confess our faith and come to the table, and let me pray as we do so. Father, of all that we do here this morning, of all the accoutrements of worship and the songs that we sing, I pray that all of these things would lead us to the astounding conclusion that you have given up everything, that you have given up glory, you've given up praise, you have given up your life so that we can have all of these things. And Lord, I pray that it would re-narrate our lives. Whatever we're struggling with right now, whatever skepticism we are working through, whatever pain and struggle that, Lord, you would help us to situate our lives again in the story of your gospel, and that it would give us a living hope, give us an accessible hope. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.